Hello, and welcome again to the Expanding Eyes podcast, where for several weeks now, I have been greatly enjoying talking about Milton's Paradise Lost, one of the most rich and rewarding poems that I know of, and I hope you might have been enjoying the richness of it too. And we left off last time towards the end of book three of Paradise Lost. We had been following the quest of Satan, who fled from hell after the defeat of the rebel angels, fighting against the good angels, against God himself. Defeated, cast into hell, but Satan flees again and is trying to make his way towards what the devils have heard is another world that God has created in the meantime. Supposedly a sort of replacement for the angels that turned against him and are now lost and cast into hell. Satan's purpose is to go to see what mischief he might be able to make. He hasn't seen this place yet. He doesn't know what it's like. But whatever it's like, he hopes to go and make as much trouble as he can, perhaps to undo it in revenge for the defeat of the war, which we will see told out of order in book six, so stay tuned. But here, Satan, as we left him last time, somewhere around line 560 in book three of Paradise Lost, if you're following along, standing on the top of what the text calls the world, and we have to be quite careful here because there is a complexity and it is a complexity unique to Paradise Lost. No other cosmology of any other epic or philosophical poem resembles what Milton does here. And the reason for that is that he was really kind of caught he, remember, had actually gone and visited Galileo in Italy in 1638, right before the English Civil War broke out and he had to hurry back home. It is quite clear that he must have looked through Galileo's telescope and seen the very different universe of modern astronomy. However, there was no consensus yet. Not only was the church persecuting Galileo, but there was some genuine scientific contro controversy as well. And it wasn't totally clear what the final shape of the cosmos was going to be. Therefore, Milton here constructs a complicated compromise. What Satan is standing on in Book 3, the world, is not the earth. The earth is inside the world, which is a hollow globe inside of which is the entire old Ptolemaic cosmos. Ptolemaic named after a Greek 
named Ptolemy in the early Middle Ages, who had contrived this view of the world, which is the old geocentric cosmos, the Earth geocentric, Earth in the center, and everything else revolving around the Earth, the Sun, the Moon, and the five planets that they knew of that are visible to the naked eye without a telescope. That is all enclosed inside this globe called the world, and that globe of the world is then hung by a golden chain off the outskirts of heaven within the infinite universe as postulated by Copernicus and Galileo. Very strange, complicated way to do things. Nevertheless, it's Milton trying to leave open the idea that maybe there is something to both views of the world. But at any rate, that's what we've got here. And Satan standing upon that globe of the world, around line 562, dives into it, dives inside that globe, without longer pause, down right into the world's first region, throws his flight precipitant, and wends his way through. And here, of all the passages in the poem, there are several, but here is one that to me most eloquently shows the influence of the wondrous new astronomy that Galileo had showed to him. Because we have to remember to have a historical sense that to anyone before Milton's time, flying around in the cosmos, there would have been seven heavenly bodies, the sun, the moon, and the five planets, and then what were called the fixed stars. Here, what Satan is witnessing as he dives into the world headed towards planet Earth is the universe that might as well be, in a sense, the universe of Star Trek now. It is a universe not with seven bodies and then a globe of fixed stars, but let me read you the passage of innumerable other worlds. Around line 565, amongst innumerable stars that shone stars distant, but night hand seemed other worlds, or other worlds they seemed, or happy isles. Distant, they look like stars, but close up, Maybe they're other worlds. And in later parts of the poem, Milton will, or the narrator at least, will speculate about, are there other races other than the human race on those other worlds? That is brand new to the world. And just to clinch where Milton got it from, Milt, uh, Satan dives down and 
before he lands on the earth, pauses and lands upon the sun, upon the surface of the sun. And the passage describing this with a little bit of dry irony around line 587, there lands the fiend, a spot like which perhaps astronomer in the sun's lucent orb through his glazed optic tube yet never saw. A lot of us know, we learned it in school, that one of the things that got Galileo, among other new astronomers, in trouble with the church was the idea that there were sunspots. The sun was supposed to be perfect all of the heavenly bodies beyond the orbit of the moon. The moon, in the old traditional way of thinking, was the limit, the, the boundary line of the fall. The sublunary world, as it was called, was fallen. It fell along with the fall of the human race. This is not in the Bible, but it was universally accepted that not just the human race fell, we pulled nature down with us, nature fell with us. As I say, the Bible does not say this. Nevertheless, it was assumed it simply to make sense of things. But that stopped at the orbit of the moon. Beyond that, the heavenly bodies were still perfect and unfallen. If you read C.S. Lewis's science fiction trilogy, the very first volume of that trilogy called Out of the Silent Planet in 1938, the human characters travel to what turns out to be Mars, as we would call it. And Lewis, who was a medieval literature specialist and deeply learned in the old cosmology tries to make a case that, well, this new universe, this is 1938, this new universe that the scientists are talking about, where it's a bunch of hydrogen gas furnaces called stars and some hunks of rock called planets, this very inhuman wasteland up there tries to make out a case that maybe that's a human mistake. Maybe the planets up there, and this turns out to be correct in the plot of the first two volumes of the trilogy, Mars in the first volume, Venus in the second, are still unfallen. Well, that was probably the last moment, 1938, when you could make a case for that. We've been up there now, and we know that evidence does not bear that out. But again, another moment of things being in flux. But it was supposed to be that the cosmos beyond the orbit of the moon was still perfect. So to see sunspots, the sun with acne, this was more than just some sort of novelty. This was a challenge to the entire old view. Lewis knew all this, and in fact, a book that I very much recommend, a 
critical book of Lewis rather than fiction called The Discarded Image. If you want to learn about the old cosmos and all the lore, it's a classic book, an ideal book for learning all of the lore, especially since Lewis, unlike so many academic critics, was a beautifully lucid, accessible writer. And he makes a point at well, one spot in The Discarded Image about we look up at the night sky and, assuming you can even see it, I live in Cleveland after all, but in the nights in which it's possible to actually see the night sky, we look up into this world of hydrogen gas furnaces and balls of matter whirling around, utterly inhuman and enormous distances. Lewis makes the point to try to get us to see and to feel as earlier people did. You walk out at night and you look up into heaven. You look up into the outskirts of the spiritual world. It was present. It wasn't an abstract belief. There it is. And that's being challenged by another view here that the dry irony of, well, the fiend lands on the sun and he forms a sunspot that's a little different than anything my friend Galileo saw in an optic tube. But nevertheless, in the process, this vision of other worlds, new worlds and new civilizations, the opening of Star Trek. Milton throughout is a mixture of the old and the new, and consciously so, I think. The description of the sun, what would it be like to stand upon the surface of the sun, is not scientific by modern astronomical ways of thinking about what it would be like if you could stand on the sun. It goes back to the old traditional view but is still wondrous, miraculous, not science fictional sense of wonder, but another kind, an older kind of wonder, the wonder of alchemy. The sun, what, what was the sun to Milton? As Satan stands there, why does the sun gleam so brightly? because it is all precious stones and precious metals. If metal, line 595, part seemed gold, part silver clear. If stone, carbuncle most, or chrysolite, ruby, or topaz, and so forth. And likens it to, in the next few lines, that stone, or like to that, which here below philosophers in vain so long have sought, the philosopher's stone of the art of alchemy, and speaks of it another few lines down as the archchemic sun. Wonderful image, even though not scientific. And then the plot takes up again. Satan has disguised himself because, more traditional lore, in the old cosmology, there were seven spheres 
and seven angels that each one had one of those heavenly spheres, the sun, the moon, and the five visible planets, in his charge, and guided those seven, and guarded those seven. And these were identified with a strange bit of imagery that was originally in the book of Zechariah in the Old Testament called the seven eyes of God that run to and fro through the whole earth, later taken up at the end of the New Testament by the book of Revelation. Well, what in the world is that all about? But this idea of seven angels, who are God's seven eyes watching, each associated with and guiding one of the planets, Milton does not mention here, although he does in other poems, that each of those uh, angels sings a pure note of music as he travels with his particular orb, and that is the so-called music of the spheres, which if you are pure and spiritual enough, perhaps you can actually hear. I do go on for a while with some of this lore, but I find it fascinating. I know from experiencing classes that students find it fascinating, at least if we don't go on absolutely forever. You know, where did the phrase music of the spheres come from? This kind of cool notion of seven angels with seven angelic bodies. At any rate, standing on the sun, the regent, as he calls him, the angel who is guarding the sun is an angel that Milton calls Uriel and identifies with one of those seven, one of the seven who in God's presence, nearest to his throne, stands ready at command and are his eyes. And not only that, but this particular angel, because he is appropriately the angel of the sun, is therefore called in line 691, the sharpest sighted spirit in all of heaven. However, you can be sharp-sighted and still be blinded to things. This little episode is not just a little bit of plot machinery. It is Milton making a moral point. Satan has disguised himself. Line 637, now a stripling cherub he appears, not of the prime. So he's a young punk cherub who has a cover story. Uh, sir, can, can you direct me towards, I've heard tell about this planet called Earth, and I'd like to go see it. It's newly created, and I heard about it, but I was not able to be there to be on the spot while it was being created because I was doing guard duty someplace else just to prevent those nasty rebel angels from causing any trouble and disrupting this second creation. And the sharpest-eyed angel in all of heaven buys it. He is fooled. Well, we should not put down Uriel. First of all, there is the omnipresent Miltonic theme of appearance and reality. Don't just trust the appearance trust that there is a reality beneath that appearance 
and it may be and often is diametrically the opposite of the appearance. In the case of God, for example, the external, distant monarch on the throne of earlier in Book 3 is also, and I made a case, I think, more deeply felt, the inward light that sustains the blind Milton in this period of his life, which is dark in all senses of the term. But here it works the other way around, and that's how it often does. The fair appearance hides corruption underneath. And as I say, let's not think too poorly of Uriel. Evil is new. They're not used to people lying and disguising and giving false stories in order to manipulate. They're not wise to all of that stuff. So they are relatively easier to fool, perhaps, than we would be because we've had all of human history to learn about that kind of thing. But at any rate, Uriel is fooled, gives him clear directions. Uh, second planet, take a left, you can't miss it. And down Satan goes, and in the very last line of book three, lands on the top of Mount Nifades, which is in the area of modern-day Armenia. Uh, a footnote in the Merit Hughes edition will tell you that much later, Milton will make Mount Nifades probably the location of the temptation of Christ by Satan as dramatized by Milton in Paradise Regained, the sequel of a sort to Paradise Lost, a poem that I like at least as much as Paradise Lost. But he lands on top of Mount Nifates, and he is in the area of Eden. I will go into this long, more lore, but fascinating lore. Well, where was the Garden of Eden? And there was controversy in various positions on that. But let me postpone that for a moment to get on with the plot, which takes us into Book 4, where Satan is alone for the first time, and at least thinks Turns out that he's a bit naive himself, but he at least thinks that he's unobserved and drops his mask in all senses of the term. Drops his disguise so that eventually Uriel looks down and sees, what? This is not that little lively cherub that I gave directions to, but also drops the mental mask, you might say. Thinking he is alone, he launches into a soliloquy. Once again, we remember that Paradise Lost, in a book called The Trinity Manuscript, Milton had actually made notes which have survived for a drama, a dramatic version of Paradise Lost. 
And we have a report that we have no way of confirming that the first eight or nine lines of the soliloquy that Satan now launches into here was actually the first part of the poem to be written back when Milton was still contemplating it as an actual drama, or at least a closet drama. Whether that's true or not, this is a remarkable moment. He has been standing on the surface of the sun. Now he has come down and looks upward back at the sun that he had been standing on, which is now up above him, and he launches into a soliloquy, which is an apostrophe, a direct address to the sun, figuratively speaking, so that the thou in the soliloquy is the sun itself. And this is the opening. These are the lines that, according to the report, were the first words that Milton actually wrote of Paradise Lost. It doesn't make any difference whether that's true or false, but it's, I find it quite interesting that if Milton did begin the poem at this point, it is the moment of Satan's despair that he begins with, like this. O thou that with surpassing glory crowned Look'st from thy soul dominion like the god of this new world, at whose sight all the stars hide their diminished heads, to thee I call. But with no friendly voice, and add thy name, O sun, to tell thee how I hate thy beams, that bring to my remembrance from what state I fell, how glorious once above thy sphere, till pride and worse ambition threw me down, warring in heaven against heaven's matchless king. Those are the lines that were supposed to be the original. But it goes on into deep psychological territory. Let me read you the torment of Satan at his dark core. Ah, wherefore, he deserved no such return from me, whom he created what I was in that bright eminence, and with his good upbraided none, nor was his service hard. What could be less than to afford him praise, the easiest recompense, and pay him thanks. How do? Yet all his good proved ill in me and wrought but malice. Lifted up so high, I disdained subjection and thought one step higher would set me highest and in a moment quit the debt immense of endless gratitude so burdensome, still paying, still to owe, forgetful what from him I still received, and understood not that a grateful mind by owing owes not, but still pays, at once indebted and discharged. What burden then? 
Oh, had his powerful destiny ordained me some inferior angel, I had stood then happy. No unbounded hope had raised ambition. Yet why not? Some other power as great might have aspired, and me, though mean, drawn to his part. But other powers as great fell not, but stand unshaken from within or from without to all temptations armed. Hadst thou the same free will and power to stand? Thou hadst. He's a mess. He veers irrationally, emotionally back and forth. I hate you, son, because you remind me what brightness I fell from. And then ricochets. Oh, it's all my own fault. And God did not, in about six lines, Satan totally admits that all of the stuff in that tremendous titanic verse that he retailed to the other devils in books one and two, all those titanic speeches were co complete lies, complete political theater. That's why I say we need to be very careful about the idea that Satan is the real hero of Paradise Lost. He knows it's all bullshit. Well, you know, I couldn't always keep just praising him, and it's such a, a debt uh, of gratitude that it, it's an infinite debt, and therefore it's so burdensome. And in the very next sentence he says, no, a grateful mind by gratitude discharges the debt instantly. What burden then? And finally ends simply admitting, hadst thou the same free will and power to stand, thou hadst. He convicts himself totally. And the result of it is in a remarkable passage that ends this long soliloquy that goes on for the better part of two pages. Jesus said in the Gospel of Luke that the kingdom of heaven is within you. Milton simply extends that and has Satan say, which way I fly is hell. Myself am hell. And in the lowest deep, a lower deep, still threatening to devour me, opens wide to which the hell I suffer seems a heaven. Myself am hell. Wherever I flee is hell. Why? Because I am hell. I bring hell along with me. Could I repent? Ah, uh, but no. Disdain forbids me. This is book four, line 83 or so and my dread of shame among the spirits beneath, whom I seduced with other promises and other vaunts than to submit, boasting I could subdue the omnipotent. I could repent, but I won't, 
because it would just be too humiliating. And over the course of another page or so, revs himself up rather than just collapse into despair, revs himself into hatred and into nihilism. Line 110, evil be thou my good. That's my final stance on this. And it says, while thus he spoke, each passion dimmed his face, and that's what Uriel sees and sounds the alarm. But it takes the angelic sentries a while to get there, and in the meantime, Satan explores the Garden of Eden, and we see, as if the camera were following him in movie terms, we see paradise, we see what we have lost, wending his way through the garden, and then finally coming upon, finally in the poem in book four, the two actual heroes of the tragic narrative, Adam and Eve. It has taken us this long to get to the protagonists of the poem, but that is part of epic tradition too. It's modeled in part upon the Odyssey, where we don't actually see Odysseus until book five of the poem. We work up to it. And there's fascinating lore about the garden and the location of the garden, all very speculative in Milton's time, and what it would be like. And Milton has his own opinions, and scholars are happy excavating all of this stuff. The Garden of Eden, we speak of the Garden of Eden. Eden is a general area. The garden is a specific spot within the more general area of Eden. And the word Eden itself, by the way, means pleasure. So when, in a phrase that occurs in Genesis, east of Eden, that would mean, in the context of the poem, we see that it means eastward within the general area or region that is called Eden. And the Garden of Eden in Milton, as in Dante, though not in the Bible, is on the top of a high mountain. We went through this in dealing with Dante's Purgatorio, because in Dante, that high mountain is the mountain of Purgatory. Here, it is another mountain, but again with the garden on top. At the top of Dante's Purgatory is the Garden of Eden, where Dante, the character, is reunited in the Purgatorio with Beatrice. Here, again on top of a high mountain, even though Genesis gives no indication. Other details that Milton embeds in the poem here do come from Genesis. The four rivers or streams that come out of the fountain, which is the water of life, that's all in Genesis, but not this idea of the mountain. But it's a literalized metaphor in both Dante and Milton. 
the idea of a higher state of being that we fell from morally, figuratively, is simply literalized. The fall of man was, for both poets, both literal and figurative. But here, unfallen, and a paradise referred to in line 247 of Book 4 as the happy rural seat of various view. We'll take up next time and talk a little bit about the various theories of where Eden was, and then go on to encounter Adam and Eve for the first time in the poem. And I hope that you have found all this interesting and we'll come back for some more next time. Mm -hmm.